Heavenly Father, we know that many people would mock us without restraint for coming here this morning, that they would call us foolish and stupid for coming and worshipping a God who is invisible, one who the scriptures were written so many years ago about. Lord, we pray that we would forget the scorn of the world against us for worshipping you because we know that we have the words of eternal life here. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not turn from your law this morning, but that we would draw closer to it. And, Lord, we pray that you would be with me as I speak. We pray that you would keep me from getting in the way this morning and from preventing people from looking at yourself. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we look at you this morning, we may see you fully. And so, Lord, we pray that you would watch over my mouth and that I would declare your praises, declare your word truthfully and faithfully so that you are honoured here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've finally come to the end of Amos's prophecy. We've been slowly working through it together. And I thought last time we may have finished all together, but this part at the very end is so good that I couldn't help but dwell on it a bit more closely. Uh, last time that we looked at Amos together, uh, we saw we primarily focused on verses 9 and 10 and how God would shake the house of Israel among all the nations as a grain is shaken in a sieve. So once again, God was speaking about the the pain, the destruction that he would bring upon Israel. But there was a sign of hope there that not even a pedal would reach, pebble would reach the ground, that God would look after even the smallest amongst his people. And this was a good sign of hope for us because as we work through the book of Amos, we've seen again and again that primarily Amos is a message of doom and gloom for the people of Israel. We've seen that Amos is this prophet who has come up into the land of Israel uh, from the land of Judah, and he has been condemning the Israelites again and again for their sins, for their particular crimes against humanity, their fellow brethren, that they were... they were taking advantage of the poor and that they were living luxurious lives, many of the people in the upper class, and had no concern for their fellow Israelites. And so God had again and again declared that he would bring judgment upon them, that he would bring judgment and destruction and his wrath against them. And here at the end of Amos chapter 9, we have this message of hope that is given, where God starts to speak very nicely about the future that is for Israel. He says that he will actually restore David's fallen tent there in verse 11. Look with me now, verse 11 of Amos chapter 9. It says, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. David, of course, is the king of Israel, uh, many generations back from the time of Amos, and he was God's anointed king, and he was the one who was to have a descendant on the throne of God's kingdom for eternity. And so there was always this idea that they were looking forward to the future when God's king would reign in God's place for all of eternity. And as we hear again and again about the people of Israel throughout the book of Amos, we keep seeing that... Israel is falling. It's falling. The tent is not in a good state at all. And that's how it's described there in verse 11. In that day, I'll restore David's fallen tent. It's a tent that is broken in places, it says in verse 11. It's in ruins. It's not as it used to be. But God says he will restore it. He will repair it in verse 11. He will build it up as it used to be. So there's this message of hope that now comes through in the end of Amos's prophecy that there will be prosperity for God's people yet, that he will restore his kingdom. And then he goes on to describe 
what that restoration will look like, the, the result of that restoration. And we see that in verses 12, 13, 14 and 15, right up to the end of the book. What does this restoration look like? Well, we see in verse 12, it says the result of this restoration would be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The Israelites will actually possess the other nations, the remnant of Edom. Edom is the nation that is descended from Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, who is also known as Israel. And Edom, Esau was not given the, uh, the promises of God. Uh, he was instead uh, not chosen, whereas Jacob was, even though Jacob was the second born. Uh, the promises were given to Jacob of God, the promises of blessing. And Edom turned against the people of Israel. But here we see in verse 12 that Jacob would possess the remnant of Edom. And not only just Edom, what does it say in verse 12? And all the nations that bear my name. Israel will actually be in charge of all the nations. And God declares that he will do these things. And then it goes on to speak of the great prosperity that will be experienced by the Israelites. They will possess all these nations, but... It then says that in, it starts to talk of the farming experience of the Israelites. It says in verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. There's this incredible prosperity that's being experienced by the Israelites where they can't actually harvest fast enough because the next crop is coming in. As they're picking grapes, people are treading grapes and in the people who have been treading grapes from the previous crop, the next crop of grapes are coming in, we see here. And the plowman is there, he's, he's right behind those who are harvesting. There's no time for fallow land. We're governed by the seasons in our farming here in the world. And so you can't just be planting at the same time that you're harvesting. But here there's this incredible prosperity experienced by the Israelites. And so that it appears that the wine is like oozing from the mountains. See that in verse 13. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. There will be such prosperity in their farming that they won't be able to keep up with the produce that's coming in and catch it all. It will just be running down the hill. And so he goes on to speak of the prosperity that it will be experienced by these people when they're brought back from exile. Verse 14, it says, I'll bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And how long will this go on for? Well, verse 15 tells us, I will plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. These are wonderful words of hope for a people that have been prophesied against again and again by the prophet Amos. But here he says that they're going to experience this golden age where farming will be so easy and it will never stop. They will enjoy the fruit of their labours for all of eternity. So the question then is, did Amos's prophecy come true? Did the Israelites experience destruction by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians? And then after a time, they were brought back from exile and experienced what is described in verses 12 through to verse 15. Did they possess all nations? Did they experience great farming, as it is described there? Or did this not come true? 
Well, they did come back. God did bring them back from exile in verse 14. It says, I'll bring back my exiled people, Israel. Yes, they did come back from Babylon, but they didn't experience the prosperity that's described here in all its fullness. Yes, God did bless them, and he continues to bless the people of Israel uh, for many years, but we see that other nations did come in and control them rather than they controlled other nations. And particularly in the New Testament, we see that the controlling nation there is not Israel in the land of Israel, it's the Romans. The Romans are in charge. It's not the Gentiles that possess the Romans. Uh, it's not the Jews that possess the Romans. It's the Romans that possess the Jews. And the prosperity is not there. So what is the fulfillment of this? Does it not actually happen? Is it still to come? Well, I think to understand Scripture and to understand parts of Scripture that are difficult for us to understand, it's best always to look at whether there's another part of Scripture that helps us to comprehend it better. And we see that this particular passage is picked up in the New Testament in that passage that we had read for us earlier from Acts chapter 15. And so I'll get you to turn to me and turn with me there now. Acts chapter 15, page 1094. Page 1094 of the Black Church Bibles. And the context of Acts chapter 15 is basically uh, the apostles have been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They've spread out across uh, different parts of the Roman kingdom, uh, Roman Empire, I should say. And then there's lots of Gentiles, non-Jews, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is upsetting to many of the Jewish Christians. And they are actually going around telling non-Jews to observe Jewish practices. And we see that in verse 1 of chapter 15. Chapter 15 of Acts, Acts, verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is quite a big statement there. You cannot be saved unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And of course, the Apostle Paul does not like this teaching that is coming around. And we see that in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. They do not like someone coming around and saying, if you do this work, then you can be saved. The Apostle Paul has taught again and again, it is by faith that we are saved. It is by believing that Jesus Christ died for you that you were saved, not by circumcision or any other work. And so what happens? Well, we have what is probably, I would say, the first Baptist assembly, because I believe that in the New Testament, of course, they're all good Baptists. Uh, there's no Presbyterians at this point that have come up with infant baptism. And so here we have an assembly of all the Baptists getting together to decide on this dispute, this dispute about whether circumcision saves. And so they go up to Jerusalem, uh, Paul and Barnabas go, and a whole bunch of people, it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And Peter makes a speech, and then we hear James speak in uh, verses 12 and following. I'll set the context with verse 12. So it says, the whole assembly in verse 12 became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. And that's James, not the brother of John, son of Zebedee. That's James, the brother of Jesus uh, from Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. James there, because, of course, the other James has had his head uh, cut off uh, by Herod at this stage. So verse 13, it says, When they finished, James spoke up. 
Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles, Gentiles means non-Jews, a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. James is going to support his claim that the Gentiles are welcome in God's kingdom, even though they're not Jews. And who's he going to refer to? Amos. Amos chapter 9. Verse 16 of Acts, we see him quote Amos there. It says, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. And then James continues. He's quoted from Amos chapter 9, the verses we're looking at today, and then he continues in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And then he goes on to speak about the encouragement that they should give to the Gentiles. And so he's saying we shouldn't make it difficult for these Gentiles and say that they must be circumcised to be saved. No, we know that God all along planned to bring the Gentiles in. And we can see that from Amos chapter 9. Those verses that we're looking at today, where God had promised that he would give Edom and all nations to the Jews there in chapter 9. So James helps us understand that the time when Amos 9 is fulfilled is actually during the period that we enjoy now since Jesus Christ has come. We're enjoying what Amos spoke about so many years ago. We're enjoying it even now. James shows that the prophecy of Amos chapter 9 is fulfilled by what? By Gentiles being welcomed into the family of God, being welcomed into David's tent. God, through Jesus Christ, is restoring David's tent and he restores many of the Jews, he rebuilds them, but he also restores the Gentiles. He brings them in. God is lifting Jews and Gentiles up from the pit, up from the pit of hell and sin and a state of misery and restoring them so that they can be part of David's tent. Because in one sense, the Jews and the Gentiles, non-Jews, we're all the same. Romans chapter 3 makes that very clear, that there's no one righteous, not even one. We've all sinned against God. We've all been disobedient. We've all rebelled against the living God. We've all been hostile towards him. But in the mercy of Jesus Christ, in his death, his blood given for us, we are restored. We are lifted up from sin. We are cleansed of our sins. We're forgiven by God and we're fashioned by the Lord Jesus Christ be a part of David's fallen tent, which is actually his tent, because, of course, he is that descendant from David which will, who will reign on the throne of David for all eternity. And so the idea here in chapter 9 of Amos, of this tent that is being restored, it's picked up in the New Testament there, and we could see it more like a, a patchwork quilt where patches are being taken and used to restore this tent. My mother likes to make quilts. She likes to make patchwork quilts. And as I was growing up, uh, we'd have different quilts on our beds. And she would take for the material for those 
quilts that she would make, she wouldn't get fresh material from the shops. No, she would take bits and pieces of material that were discarded from other projects that she made with her sewing machine. So there'd be bits of my uh, sister's dresses would be there. There'd be bits of uh, sheets or cushions that she'd made for the, the couch. There would be all these little bits and pieces, offcuts, that she would take, she would shape, and then she would put them into the patchwork quilt, and then there would be a nice warm quilt for our beds. And some of them were very colourful. She'd arrange them in some way so that there was this beautiful piece of artwork that we would use on our beds that was made up of offcuts, of remnants, of other bits and pieces of things that she had made. And that's what's happening with David's tent here. God is taking people from all different nations, including Judah and the Jews, and restoring his tent by grafting them all in together. And this is wonderful news for us as Gentiles, that God's message of salvation is not for one race. It's not for simply the people of Israel, but it is for all nations. We are all welcome to be grafted into David's tent Now, there's a special place in the eyes of God for his people Israel, and we should never boast over the root that supports us as Gentiles. I'm assuming pretty much everyone in the room is a Gentile here. If you're a Jew, well, then welcome too. But most of us here, we are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. But we are welcome to become a part of David's fallen tent that God restores. And what does that mean then? for God's fallen tent that he is restoring, for David's tent. It means great prosperity. The fact that God welcomes people of all nations in, that the Israelites, the people of Israel, the true Israel, possess the remnant of Edom and all nations that bear God's name. What does that mean? It means great prosperity for God's kingdom, for his tent. We can see that shown by the way that people are gathered in from all over the world into Christendom as we know it, which is really a fulfilment of the verses that follow in Amos chapter 9. What did we see in Amos chapter 9? God would restore the fallen tent, it says in verse 11. Then, verse 12, it would be with the result that they would possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear God's name. And then what would happen? God says in verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Now, how is that fulfilled? How is that fulfilled today? Well, you can see that it is fulfilled by the way that people are coming in large numbers to be a part of God's tent that as a result of God welcoming all nations into his kingdom, it has grown to a size that the Israelites never, ever had. When God called one nation, they were very limited to that area. Now, we over here in Australia are welcome to be a part of that tent, and we're actually a part of it, which means that there's this incredible prosperity. It means that when we share the gospel with people, and when people become Christians, and we continue to water that gospel that we share it's a fulfillment of verses of verse 13 where it says the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes as one is scattering the seed another person is harvesting what's happened before there's all these gospel opportunities that are around us 
It is not as though we have to sow some seed for a time and then wait for a time and then people will become Christians. No, there's Christians becoming Christians over here and then there's people over here sharing the gospel and then that'll be harvested and then they'll they'll be sowing over there as well and it's just all over the world. We see that people are sowing, people are harvesting and they're treading on one another's toes whilst they're sharing the gospel and harvesting the fruits of the gospel. The Gentiles now make up huge portions of David's tent. And it's because of what this activity, this incredible activity that's been happening since the apostles spread out from Jerusalem and took the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the kingdom of God has indeed been like that mustard seed that Jesus spoke about that was very small but in time would grow with branches over all the earth, even over here to Sydney, Australia. And this farming illustration then is so helpful for us in chapter 9 as we see that it is fulfilled in the gospel going out to all nations. And this then means that we have gospel opportunities all over the place. It means that everyone you come into contact with is welcome to come into David's tent. From preschools and scripture classes to the nursing homes, from the cradle to the grave, everyone you meet in these areas is welcome to come. You don't have to check, are you a Jew? Are you not a Jew? And then I will share the gospel with you. No, everyone is welcome. It means from farmers out in remote areas to people in densely populated areas up in apartment buildings, they're welcome to come as well. You don't have to check what nationality they are before you share the gospel. It means family, friends, strangers, the barista who makes your coffee, they're always welcome. Everyone is welcome because we see the words of Amos 9 are fulfilled that Israel possesses the remnant of Edom and all nations that bear God's name. So from the beggar on the street to the CEOs of big corporations to the Prime Minister himself, they're all welcome to come and be a part of David's tent. And that is wonderful news for us because as we go out, as we try and fulfil the command that we have as Christians from God to share the good news, we don't have to check where someone stands racially because we know that all nations are now welcome. If the person is breathing, they're an opportunity. They're a person that can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Does that impress you? That all nations are welcome in the kingdom of God? It should, but I think sometimes we just take it for granted. We've heard it so many times, particularly if we've grown up in church, that all nations are welcome in God's house, that we take it for granted as though, of course God should grant salvation to the Gentiles. But if we go back to the Old Testament and we go into the New Testament as well when this transition was being made, yes, of course, Gentiles were welcome in many stages in Old Testament history as well. There were uh, non-Jews who were a part of the kingdom of God, but not in the way that they're welcome in the New Testament. It was revolutionary for the early Christians who were Jews to hear that they could take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that Gentiles were welcome as well. And so the Apostle Paul spent most of his life defending this truth from those who opposed it, who would say that we here today in this room, if you're not a Jew, you shouldn't be following God because you are not welcome. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear that this is a wonderful mystery of God that he does this for us. We should never take it for granted. 
We think, oh, of course he should have us in his kingdom. No, it's a mystery that he does include us after he had shown such special affection for Israel for so many centuries that he would then open the doors in the way that he has for all nations to come in. And we see the Apostle Paul making much of this, the fact that it is a mystery, in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me there now because we just don't understand, I feel, sometimes how marvellous it is, what a mystery it is, that God has welcomed us in. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1157. Page 1157 of the Black Church Bibles. Reading from verse 11. I'm going to read a fair chunk down to verse uh, 6 of chapter 3. Verse 11 of chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. We who are Gentiles by birth, remember what you were. You were excluded. You couldn't claim the promises of God. But, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, peace, who has made the two, as in non-Jews and Jews, he's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, again and again it's mentioning the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. We take it for granted that there shouldn't be hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But there was because again and again God had shown affection just for one nation. But now in Christ Jesus, what has he done? He's taken the two and made them one. He's made one tent. He hasn't set up two tents and said, I'm going to have a Jewish tent and I'm going to have a non-Jewish tent. No, he's taken non-Jews and made them part of the Jewish tent. And he's done it all by Jesus Christ. We'll continue. Verse 17. He, that's Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far away. Far away here in Sydney, Australia. And peace to those who are near, those in Jerusalem, the Israelites. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Not two separate spirits for each people group. No, one spirit we share. Going on, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. That's what we should be, but we're not. But fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he just can't help himself. He's on a different track. And now the Apostle Paul, in verse 2, uh, gets distracted again by this mystery. He keeps calling it mystery. Verse 2, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. What's this mystery? Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's us, 
are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We're right there with the Jews now. Marvellous truth. And we should never take it for granted. We do so often, I think, because we grow up in, we've grown up in this age and we think, of course God welcomes the Gentiles. It was hard for those early Jews to accept and it's still something that the Apostle Paul calls a mystery. But we know through the Apostle Paul and through, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Jew, Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all in Christ Jesus to tent together. If we have that one spirit living in us by which we repent and trust in Jesus' work at the cross for us. So the question for you now is, do you recognise that you live in a time of never-ending grace? The kind of period that Amos describes there, where people are sowing, people are reaping, and wine is dripping from the mountains because God's grace has been extended to all nations. Do you recognise that? That God's kindness has been displayed by welcoming people of all nations? There's three signs I came up with to show whether you do recognise this, whether you recognise the wonder of what God has done in fulfilling Amos's prophecy by welcoming Gentiles into his tent. Three signs for you. Firstly, do you thank God that he welcomes you, a Gentile, into his tent? Do you thank him for restoring his tent, not just with Jews, but restoring his tent with yourself. Do you realise that if he hadn't done that, if Amos chapter 9 hadn't been fulfilled in the way that James in Acts tells us it is fulfilled, that you wouldn't actually be a part of the tent of God. That if you're a non-Jew, you would be excluded. The way wouldn't be welcome to you. But instead, God in his mercy, in his kindness, he has welcomed you into his tent. Do you thank God for that? Secondly, do you evangelize and encourage evangelism as though Amos's prophecy is indeed true? Everyone is welcome to be a part of God's tent. And so that means opportunities are everywhere. Wherever you go, anyone you meet, unless you're on your own in solitary confinement in some building somewhere or you're out in the wilderness somewhere and there's no one around... There are opportunities everywhere if you are bumping into people, which means there's no place for Christian retirement. The Christian is never retired. Yes, you may be able to retire from secular work, but you're never able to retire from being a Christian because there are opportunities all over the place. There is work to be done. The harvesters and the sowers, the ploughmen, the one treading grapes, the one harvesting the grapes, they're, they're treading on one another's toes. There's so many opportunities around. And so there's no place for Christian retirement. There's always someone that you can be welcoming in as you come across non-Christian after non-Christian, as you go about your lives. They're all welcome. Do you believe that? If the answer is yes, well, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who wasn't a Christian? When was the last time that you actually told someone that they are welcome, despite the fact that they may not be a Jew, that they are welcome to be part of David's tent? When was the last time you gave to missions, 
to those who would go overseas and share the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you really believe that all nations are welcome, when was the last time you gave so that people could take the gospel to the ends of the earth? We have to understand that the fields are ripe for harvest. We just need workers to enjoy the harvest. We need people to sow as the harvesters are bringing in their crop. There are plenty of fish out there in the ocean. We just need fishes of men to let down the nets and tell people to repent of their sins and embrace the eternal life that only Jesus Christ gives. Sharing the gospel in this age, I think, is a bit like mowing a lawn with scissors. Have you seen people sometimes out there mowing a lawn with scissors? I saw someone doing it the other day with handheld scissors. And I think this person was out the front of an apartment buildings. I think it's a very small patch of grass and they probably don't have a lawnmower for any other part of the property. But it was this little patch of grass and they were there with scissors cutting the grass. Now, if you've got a fairly decent-sized lawn, cutting the grass with scissors would be a never-ending job. And that's a bit like what it is in this age when Amos 9 is being fulfilled and all nations are welcome to be a part of God's kingdom. There are so many opportunities around that. It'd be like if you're cutting with your scissors one part of the lawn and then you move on to another part, by the time you're done over there, the other part of the lawn's grown up fresh opportunities that you could go back over and start cutting at as well. There are so many opportunities if Amos 9 is true, that all nations are welcome in God's kingdom now. We just need to get more involved. We need to believe it more so that we share the gospel as we should. Three signs, I said, for whether we really believe that all nations are welcome. Firstly, do we thank God, particularly if we're not a Jew, that we're welcome? Secondly, do we take the mo- make the most of the opportunities that are there by sharing the gospel and giving to those who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Third one is, do we enjoy evangelizing all nations? Because we can eat yummy fruit from our labors. Did you see that in Amos chapter 9? Amos chapter 9, where it talks about the fruit that comes from their labors, which I think is metaphorically fulfilled in the way that we enjoy our evangelism. Verse 14, after it talks about new wine dripping from the mountains and the plowman, being over, uh, plowman overtaking the reaper, verse 14 it says, I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. Evangelism can be delightful work. You can eat fruit from your work. That's part of the reason I love being a pastor. Of a church. I love seeing all kinds of people become Christians, from people who are very young to people who are very old, from all different racial backgrounds, from all different levels of economic prosperity. They're all welcome, and I love offering them all eternal life. It's a joy for me to be able to say to someone, You can live forever. And to see them grasp that truth is a wonderful fruit, a wonderful joy for me of the labour of evangelism. And then to see Christians continuing to grow as a result of the evangelistic efforts that we make, to see them growing, is such an encouragement to us. The Apostle John, in his third letter, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy 
than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It was a great joy for him to see people grasping eternal life and continuing to hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that can be a joy for you too. If you tell people the gospel and see them become a Christian and then see them grow in grace, it's a joy. It should be a joy. It's one of the most wonderful things we can see. And so in one sense, there are gospel opportunities all over the place. And it's like we're cutting the lawn with scissors in many respects, which sounds very laborious. I don't want to cut my lawn with scissors, even though it's not as big as some people's. I still don't want to go out there with scissors to cut my lawn. But we should see it more as we're like goats keeping the lawn down instead. They work very slowly, chomp, 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 chomp. They've only got mouths that are so big, but they're enjoying the work of keeping the lawn down. And that's what we've got to be like. Don't mean goats as in we go, we're going to the kingdom of darkness. Maybe I should say more like sheep. We're more like sheep, that we are chewing on the grass that is the opportunities to share the gospel. And as we chew, as we share the gospel, we're enjoying it. It's feeding our souls and we're taking delight in it. So this tiny glimmer of hope at the end of Amos chapter 9 should thrill us that we live in the age that he is speaking of, where the nations are welcome in David's tent. God is restoring his tent. It's happening in our time. And that grace is flowing down the mountains, down from Mount Zion towards us now here in Australia, so that more and more people become Christians. God's grace is like waves that are coming in from the ocean. Again and again, they're coming in one after another. And then one day, we experience that grace now, wave after wave in this life. And then one day, the big wave of God's grace will take us to glory, will take us to be with our Saviour, where we will see him face to face. Are you surfing on the waves of God's grace even now? I've never surfed. I wouldn't have a clue how to do it. I did have a boogie board and tried to use that a few times. But I've surfed on the waves of God's grace and enjoyed it. It's been thrilling. And I'm looking forward to the big tidal wave that sweeps me home. Are you enjoying the waves of God's grace that started flowing from Calvary so many years ago? to all nations rippling over to here in Australia, and we can enjoy them now until we go to glory. Let's speak with him now. Let's speak with our God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for showing us the incomparable riches of your grace in restoring David's fallen tent and including us, Gentiles, in that restoration work. Oh, Lord, we don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your kindness, even though we so often think that we do. Oh, Lord, we recognize that we don't. But it's all by your mercy, by your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to seize the opportunities of seeing others restored into your tent. Use us to bring people as patches to that fallen tent so that it extends even further across this world and help us to enjoy the work. Oh, Lord, it can be debilitating work sometimes and discouraging to share the gospel with those who do not want to be saved. But, Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy offering eternal life to those who do not have it. And when they accept it, when they grab Jesus Christ with both hands, 
and become part of his family. Oh, Lord, we pray that there may be no greater delight for us to see, and then we may enjoy watching them walking in the truth as a result. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.